Today on Blue 58, the Packers' offensive line is very compelling and still pretty uncertain, if you ask me. Beyond or maybe because of two very noteworthy knee injuries, the entire right side of the offensive line is feeling pretty unsettled at the moment. So how is all this going to sort out in 2022? Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. Voting is underway on the four podcast pitch submissions that we received. Head to thepowersweep.com to participate there. Voting runs through Friday, July 29th at 5 p.m. We are very excited about all the pitches we've got. Thank you to everybody who submitted, and thank you to everybody who's going to vote on this. We're very excited about uh, about that process. Offensive line, other than cornerback, I think it might be the Packers' deepest position group, and I'm grouping all of the offensive line together here. I know there is some difference between the, the positions, tackles, guards, center. As a body together, offensive line, I think, is pretty deep. Other than cornerback, it might be the deepest position group on the roster. And I think without a couple of pieces of pretty significant uncertainty, it would unquestionably be the deepest position group on the Packers. But saying that is a pretty classic version of the, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play line? Because the uncertainty we're talking about is pretty, it's it's a big deal because it's injuries to David Bakhtiari and Elton Jenkins. You can't talk about the Packers offensive line without talking about Bakhtiari and Jenkins, because they're two crucially important players, and they're just really, really good when they're healthy, too. They are two of the top ten players on the Packers, for sure. One or both might be in the top five, depending on how you count. But no matter what else happens on the offensive line, they are going to define what happens with this group. They are the story. How will David Bakhtiari's knee injury from late in the 2020 season continue to affect him into 2022, if at all? Because there is a world in which that knee injury doesn't bother him at all, and he just plays a normal season with his normal joints. Elton Jenkins, we know, is going to be affected by the ACL injury he had near the middle of last season. It's going to be some time before he's back to full strength. He's not going to start the season at full strength. Even if he's ready to go in week one, there's still going to be a breaking in period. These guys are going to define the Packers' offensive line. Or, maybe more importantly, in their absence, the offensive line dealing with the holes created by Bakhtiari or Jenkins or both is going to be the story of that group. There are some good players worth considering, though, even beyond those two. And we'll talk about every player on the offensive line here as we, as we work through our expectations for the line. As we dive into this specifically, I want to say that it is hard to talk about meeting expectations here, so I'm not going to get super specific on offensive linemen as I have with other guys. For starters, it's difficult to evaluate offensive line. It's Unless you sit down and do every player every play, it's hard to talk about the, the line specifically. We can use things like pro football focus grades and, and things like that, some of the, the numbers that we've created. It still is pretty squishy talking about the the evaluation of the offensive line. And I've seen even people who who do that every player, every play type evaluation come to different conclusions on guys. So it's possible to to have a systematic approach and still come up with something completely different than everybody else. So we're not going to get super hard and fast. It's more about what area that guys fall into in our no, low, moderate, high expectations rankings. 
it is a feel thing. Does this season feel right for what they can do or the position in which they find themselves on the Packers roster? Four guys fall into our no expectations group. Michael Mennett, Cole Schneider, George Moore, and Caleb Jones. Mennett, the fact that he's a center may help. I don't think it does a whole lot for him either. Schneider, kind of the same deal, has some center possibilities. There are other versions of him on the roster too that put him in a tough spot. George Moore is intriguing. If I had to pick one player from this group of guys for which we don't really expect much at all to break out, it would be him. I just think looking at his pedigree as a player, the needs the Packers figure to have on their offensive line, he looks like someone who could have an opportunity here if a couple things break his way. And Caleb Jones, to round things out, is still very big. As far as people with low expectations, I think we've got to start with Jake Hansen. He, to me, is a perfect example of the limits of that draft pick scholarship sort of thing that we talk about from time to time. There is an amount of time that you have as an NFL draft pick, and it varies from player to player, just by the fact that you are a draft pick. You're going to get extra consideration because the team has sunk some resources into you. And Hansen, I think, has stuck around by virtue of, for one thing, that he was a draft pick, also but because he's a center. The Packers haven't had a ton of options at center over the past couple of years. He's at least been in the conversation. But now he's getting passed by because the Packers are finding other options there. So I think expectations are accordingly pretty low. Anything at all from him, I think, would be a surprise at this point. The Packers really haven't had much occasion to ask for much from him, and really no reason to either. He hasn't shown them a lot of get-me-on-the-field-please sort of promise. So I think if you want to look at predictions for Hansen in 2022, I'd be pretty, pretty comfortable saying that he's done in Green Bay. Cole Van Lannen, next on my list, similar to Hansen with some positional versatility. He's got the draft pick scholarship sort of pedigree, but it only goes so far. Life's pretty tough for a low-end draft pick when the team takes what amounts to the better model of you the next year in the draft. Sean Ryan has a pretty firm claim to Cole Van Lannen's job already, just by virtue of the fact that he does pretty much the exact same thing that Van Lannen does. So I would predict that Van Lannen is going to spend some time on the practice squad in 2022. It wouldn't surprise me if he got to the active roster at some point. The depth chart is just working against him at, at this point. Rashid Walker is the first player I have in my moderate expectations group. We talked about Romeo Dubs being the perfect scouting test case for wide receivers on the Packers roster. Were the scouts right that he should slide to where he was ultimately taken, or will we be wondering in a couple years how that was possible? Walker is that on the offensive line. He was a long-term starter in college at a big program in a big conference. He has good physical attributes. That is a pretty good scouting report in and of itself. So how does a guy like that last until the seventh round? There are plenty of answers. Many of them seem to be related to his mental makeup and, and things that go into that evaluation, which is tough to evaluate from the outside because we don't have any firsthand contact with Rashid Walker. I suppose we could find out a way to call him up and see if he, um, if he feels like he loves football or if he feels like this is going to be his life, life's work or whatever. All those sort of questions that scouts ask prospects and 
ding them for their responses accordingly. I mean, some of that is legit, too. Like, is this something that you're really going to continue to work on forever, or is you know, you're just going to see what happens? There are also, I think, some justified concerns with, did he just maul people in college, or did he play because he was a, a good technician and, and things like that? Still, I'm intrigued by him as a player, and I don't really know where he ends up as far as the Packers roster this year, but I do have a guess. I would think the plan for him, if it works out to the the best possible extent that it could, would be for him to be the next version of Yash Nyman, the swing tackle of the future. Nyman came to the Packers in a similar sort of situation, not nearly as decorated a program as Walker played at at Penn State. He was a Virginia Tech guy. But you see what I'm saying. He, he played at a not, not worth, noteworthy program in college. But he needed some seasoning before he could be a real NFL player. He had some good physical attributes. Nyman, we've talked about for a long time, maybe pound for pound the best athlete on the Packers roster. Give him some seasoning then and hope for the best. And it worked out for the Packers and Nyman. I think the Packers are probably thinking something similar with Walker. He showed he can play in college. He may need some development time in the NFL. But if he develops, he really got something. So I would predict that Walker will be on the Packers' 53-man roster at some point in 2022. Not necessarily right out of the gate. It could take a little bit of time for him to get there. He may end up on the practice squad to start and end up on the 53-man roster. But I think at some point he's going to be on the 53. Zach Tom is my next prospect up here. About as exciting for me personally as an offensive line prospect can be. He seems to be a perfect fit for what the Packers like on the offensive line. Some tackle experience, some interior line experience, some center experience. He projects as a a five-position player on the offensive line. Your needs may vary, so he may not play all five positions. Left tackle might be a stretch for him. I do worry about the length, putting him on the outside, but it's at least possible. Expectations, personally, are pretty moderate for him. I would go high, given his his physical attributes, his, his pedigree to this point, but he's a rookie, and the depth chart being what it was, It's not clear what role he's going to have immediately. But I do think there's a good chance that he has a John Runyon-esque ascension. Packers have a need somewhere. He steps in and then just kind of stays there. And I think that opportunity will come for him sooner or later. I think the Packers are going to want to get him on the field. I think right guard is wide open. And I predict along those lines that Zach Tom is going to play more than 50 snaps on offense in 2022. Sean Ryan slots in just slightly higher on my expectation scale than than Mr. Tom. He, too, is about as exciting an offensive line prospect can be. Not a perfect prospect, but very, very good. Moderate expectations, though, because the depth chart prevents me from going much higher. Not because he's necessarily too far down on it or there's people ahead of him, just because there's a lot of people in the mix for where he figures to be playing. Right guard or right tackle have a lot of contenders right now. And there are scenarios where he could be the starting right guard or the starting right tackle or the Packers swing tackle once Elton Jenkins come back. There's a lot of different opportunities for Sean Ryan available out there to say nothing of how he'll slot into the roster with a guy like Yash Nyman in the mix too. Short term, I think Sean Ryan versus Royce Newman is going to be a real position battle this summer. And it might actually be taking place at two different positions too because Newman too has some multi-position versatility. He can do a little right guard. He can do a little right tackle. He even played center at the Senior Bowl prior to the 2021 draft. 
I predict that Sean Ryan is going to start a game for the Packers in 2022. In fact, I'd like to up that prediction and say he's going to start multiple games for the Packers in 2022. It just feels like that is his path for the Packers. He's going to end up somewhere on the right side of the offensive line. It seems inevitable that the Packers are going to try some different things there while they wait for Elton Jenkins to return. Speaking of Elton Jenkins... He is the last in my moderate expectations category, if only because of his ACL tear. Prior to that, he was having basically another typical Elton Jenkins season, which is to say he was amazing, playing a position that he hadn't really done at the NFL level before and left tackle in relief of David Bakhtiari, the thinking being that he would slot in there until Bakhtiari came back near the middle of the season, then he would slide somewhere else on the offensive line. The Packers were going to be great. It was going to be awesome because they were going to have so many options on the offensive line. But then David Bakhtiari never really comes back. Then Jenkins tears up his knee too, and then it all just kind of goes to heck from there. You know the story. We don't have to belabor that point. Besides, we're going to go over it again when David Bakhtiari comes up in our discussion. Expectations for Mr. Jenkins, I think, have to be pretty moderate this year. Training camp starts July 27th, 2022, and that would be 249 days from his ACL tear. I think it's a foregone conclusion that he starts the season on the physically unable to perform list, so I'm going to make that one of my predictions for him this year. However, I will also predict that he is the Packers starter at right tackle whenever he returns. I think it's too valuable to even mess around with putting him at at guard at this point. He's going to be a tackle whenever he comes back, and whenever he's ready to go, he's going to slide in at right tackle, and that's just going to be that. He's going to be the guy there. I think that is his his path forward, and he has reason to want that too, because tackles get paid more than guards, and he's looking at free agency here in the very near future, so he should start thinking about what he needs to do to get paid as much as possible, and I would be, if I was him, pushing to play on the outside, and if I was his agent, I'd be pushing the same thing as well, because they're considerations Jenkins and his agent are going to have a a say here too. What he wants for his career is part of this conversation, and if he wants to be a tackle, I think the Packers need to at least consider that because it's best for him. It's probably best for the team to figure out tackle before guard, and long-term, Jenkins is going to make a lot more money being on the outside than being on the inside. Royce Newman is the first guy I have in the high expectations category. Last year, I think he was hurt in the public perception by how quickly his story changed because he went from mid-round draft pick to a nice story, hey, this guy might be something, to a surprise starter, to a disappointing starter, to out of the lineup entirely when the Packers got a couple guys back. And that's understandable because it was bad at times last year, but he also got better as the season went on. And look at the snap counts. Nobody played more snaps on offense for the Packers in 2021 than Royce Newman. How bad could he really have been if he was out there for virtually every single snap last season? Expectations for Newman, I think, have to be high this year. He still has positional versatility, can play guard and tackle in theory. He still is a very good athlete, was a good tester before he came out. The opportunities are going to be there for him, especially as something of an incumbent on the Packers' offensive line. There are are real opportunities for him to, to make an impact and to get a real shot early on to show, hey, just because you drafted these guys doesn't mean that they're going to take my job. I've got real experience. You need to consider me. 
So I'm going to predict that Newman will be the Packers' initial starter at right guard this season. Week one, he will start for the Packers at right guard. That may not be their preferred long-term option, but I think they'll go with the familiarity to start the season. It may be in jeopardy with uh, a guy like Zach Tom longer term, but Newman's going to get the first crack at it. Yash Nyman, my next man up. A great undrafted free agent success story. And as we've sort of mentioned in passing a couple of times on this podcast, he stands to be a pretty to very wealthy man pretty no, pretty much no matter how his 2022 season goes. If he takes any kind of step forward from where he was last season, someone is just going to throw buckets of money at him to come play either starting tackle for them or, or be a super highly paid swing tackle. And it's easy to see why. He was not incompetent as a starting left tackle last year. And guys with his size and his athletic ability with any kind of ability at tackle are just so rare that you've got to almost roll the dice with him as a free agent or or whatever you can do to have him on your team. You're almost obligated to try no matter how it works out because if he turns out to be anything, it's a plus. Guys this big and this athletic who can play at even a competent level are incredibly rare. So I think in Green Bay this year, expectations have to be accordingly pretty high. He's going to be the Packers' swing tackle this year. I don't think there's going to be a Dennis Kelly moment for him in 2022 where, in a tough spot, the Packers decide to go with the guy who had been buried on the depth chart over a guy who's actually played. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to let that go from the divisional round game last year where Nyman had been an in-and-out starter at left tackle, but instead of going with him, at left or right tackle, they go with Billy Turner and Dennis Kelly. And at least part of the reason they lost was because things were unsettled at the tackles. And they had another option, and they decided to go with an untested group rather than a guy who had been tested and shown to be at least adequate. John Runyon is another very good success story for the Packers. He really has solidified their left guard spot over the past couple seasons when they've needed help when Elton Jenkins has either had to go around and be Superman elsewhere or Jenkins has just been out. He was the Packers' rock on the offensive line in 2021. Newman had more snaps, which is still pretty hilarious, but Runyon's snaps were of a higher quality. And I think heading into this year, it's pretty simple to say why the expectations should be pretty high. He should be the entrenched starter at left guard. And given who else has played that spot, Elton Jenkins, uh, he's got a lot to live up to. But I think he's shown that he can be a very, very good player in the NFL. And he's got a big opportunity this year. So I would predict that he is going to start every game at left guard when he's healthy. Uh, Whenever he's healthy, he's going to be the Packers' left guard starter. Josh Myers. Um, Bit of a roller coaster 2021. He was good when he was healthy. But he was not healthy that much. Looking back, it felt like he played a lot more. It was really only seven games, though. He was in the lineup for four games as the Packers' starting center. Then he was hurt and out for a game. Then he played just four games the next week in his first game back. And then he was out until week 18. He played the final regular season game in the the Packers' playoff game, too. Who knows how close to 100% he really was because you need some time to get back up to speed. But the Packers threw him out there. Seems like he did pretty okay. 
Expectations are going to be high for Myers this year. He will always have the Creed-Humphrey comparison to, to go with. As good as Myers was last year, Creed-Humphrey was better, and Humphrey went a pick later. It's an interesting discussion, I think, to have because Myers was, was pretty good, though, last year. Even if Humphrey was better, Myers was good. And it it's interesting to, to look at this as kind of a, a bit of a tendency breaker for the Packers because Humphrey is a dynamic athlete at the position. Myers is a good athlete, too, but he's bigger. Um, he's less athletic but bigger. Packers go size over athleticism at center for the first time that I can really remember. We're going to have to monitor that comp for a while because the Packers haven't really done something like they did with Myers and Humphrey in the past. We'll see how it works out. But I predict that Myers will play and start every game at center this year. So he's going to have better health in 2022, and he's going to be the Packers' undisputed starter at center. We're going to round out our offensive line discussion by talking about David Bakhtiari. Waiting for David could have been the story of the Packers' 2021 offensive line. And I have a hard time thinking of a more impactful injury in recent Packers history than his 2020 ACL tear. Rodgers' collarbone injury in 2017 might be the closest thing because he was on an MVP pace prior to breaking his collarbone against the Vikings. What could that season have looked like? I don't know if we ever really get a good idea of how good the 2017 Packers really were because so many things just kind of dissolved after Rodgers got hurt. And after Hundley played a couple games, I mean, he shouldn't have. But I think you can at least understand where Martellus Bennett was coming from when he said, all right, man, I'm out of here. This is not what I signed up for because this team is is rudderless right now without Aaron Rodgers. I'm just gonna, if I can get out of here, I can. That was a, a bad thing to do. But you at least see the line of thinking there because that ship got dragged down by the anchor that was Brett Hundley that season because he just could not do it. And he, a lot of people failed Hundley there too. Um, Hundley was, had a bad season, bad, he was bad in his opportunities, but the Packers did nothing to help him in terms of the offense or just how he could perform in it. Um, kind of a, a cascading series of failures there too. So I don't know if we can really say how good the Packers 2017 team was, but Rodgers' injury robbed us of any chance to really see for sure. Back to Bakhtiari, his ACL injury has now, I think, arguably ruined two seasons. You can say that without hanging it entirely on that injury, that if nothing else, a weak offensive line, or at least weaknesses on the offensive line, were key factors in two playoff losses. Not the only factor, to be sure, but a big one. And it's beyond just being weak at tackle, too. Here's something I was rolling around in my head today. There's no answer to it, but I have to wonder. Would Elton Jenkins have torn his ACL if he'd been playing guard instead of playing tackle? Different movements, different, just you're in a different spot on the field. Would it have happened? And we'll never know. But... We do know that he was only playing left tackle because David Bakhtiari was injured. So, what would have happened? We'll never know. But I think expectations for Bakhtiari have to be high in 2022. He's got to play. It's only a question of timing because the Packers couldn't have known 
But the Packers have a ton of money tied up in Bakhtiari, and they've gotten almost literally nothing for it. All they've gotten from David Bakhtiari, essentially post-big contract extension, was a, and I should have looked up the timing, but it was a game or two at the end of 2020, a meaningless Week 18 game in 2021, and then nothing else. He also causes cascading issues if he doesn't play. Nyman is your left tackle starter then. That means one less option at right tackle. And to circle back to to Yash Nyman, I think he's going to be the Packers' week one starter at right tackle. That is something that I wanted to to drop in there as well, um, just to do those things out of out of sequence. But if, if Bakhtiari can't play in week one, Nyman bumps over to the left side more than likely. That means one less option at right tackle, which means you're probably deciding between Royce Newman and Sean Ryan on the right side. Which means if Newman steps in at right tackle, who steps in at right guard? Is it Sean Ryan? Is it Zach Tom? Is it somebody else? You can see the question of cascading issues. I would predict, though, that based on what Matt LaFleur has said, that Bakhtiari is going to be ready to go for training camp. I predict that he is going to be the Packers' week one starter, but I also would say that I I would predict that he's going to miss some time this year. I, I don't feel confident that he will play every season and be healthy all season long. It's been functionally a year and a half since he's played regular NFL football. You almost say have to say two years because it's been since the end of 2020 till it'll be September 2022 before he takes a a real meaningful snap in an NFL game again. It's closer to two years than, than a year and a half, I guess. Pretty close either way. Your body just is not meant to go that long. Seasoning, being in football shape is a big part of this game. And I think as a result, he's going to miss some time in 2022. I've read more than a few things about where Bakhtiari and the Packers should should go long-term, regardless of how his 2022 season plays out. For me and this podcast and my website, I have no idea. I don't know what you do there. This We are, as far as the map, in Here Be Dragons territory because I, I... what do you do with a, a, a tackle who's in his 30s on the path to recovery, at some point on the path to recovery from an ACL injury less than a month after he tore or after he signed a, a huge contract extension? I, what do you do? I don't know. How do you handle that? Plus, he's good friends with your starting quarterback who has been a little bit wishy-washy about his future in football as well. A lot of factors at play there. So I don't know what you do. It could be that he just comes back and everything's hunky-dory. Or it could be that we have a hit-and-miss 2022 again, and then we've got some really big questions to ask whenever things finally wind down for the Green Bay Packers in 2022. To say nothing of the answers, I don't even know what the questions are at that point. But we got a ways to go before we get there. But to use an analogy that we've returned to a couple times already, that doomsday clock ticks closer to midnight every day that we don't know for sure what Bakhtiari is going to do in 2022. 
That is the Packers' offensive line. So I've got for you on that particular thing. But that's not all for today's show because we're going to talk about the next chapter of the games that changed the game here in a second. Before we do, I want to remind you to vote in our podcast scholarship poll at thepowersweep.com. You can listen to all the pitches there. Just go to thepowersweep.com. You'll find it. Um, let us know which one you think deserves the scholarship this year and uh, record your vote by Friday, July 29th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. The Games That Changed the Game, Chapter 6, The Zone Blitz. Jaworski talks about a key play in the Super Bowl in his intro to this one. James Harrison intercepting Kurt Warner and running it back 100-some yards for a touchdown in that very exciting Steelers-Cardinals Super Bowl. I think it's funny that that anecdote focuses on Harrison doing something that you're not, air quotes, supposed to do. Because Harrison made that pick, at least in Jaworski's telling here, because he made a smart read, not necessarily because he was following the play. He just broke off what he was supposed to do, made a guess, and wouldn't you know it, he guessed exactly right. And that theme of not doing what your air quotes supposed to do has been a recurring one as we talk about innovations uh, throughout this book. Buddy Ryan is a good example. You're not supposed to blitz everybody on first and ten. But you unleash that defense, you just give everybody the green light, or strategically give people the green light, and it causes havoc. And the zone blitz is ultimately about causing havoc for quarterbacks, making them see things that aren't really there, or think they see things that aren't really there. I thought this chapter was particularly interesting because it seems to be the zone blitz that is, one of the few innovations that arrived on its own in more or less a totally unique way. It came fully formed, and it appears to be broadly invented out of whole cloth. It just appeared, and there it is, and the NFL is different now. LeBeau gets quite an endorsement to that effect from Bill Belichick. Quote, To me, LeBeau's place in history is secure as the creator of the Zone Blitz. The fact that he not only created it, but it hasn't really ever had to modify it, is incredible. I can't find anything else in football to compare it with, end quote. And if Bill Belichick can't find anything to compare it with in football history, you can bet more or less that it pretty much just doesn't exist. There is nothing like this in football history. It just arrived, and there was the time before the zone blitz existed, and there's a time after it. I like Solomon Wilcott's description of the defense. Quote, LeBeau's concepts are much more effective in the 3-4. The fewer linemen you have, the more you can create the illusion of pressure. It's the defense's version of a Rubik's cube, not trying to make quarterbacks figure out, trying to make quarterbacks figure out what they're seeing, and they haven't got all day. End quote. You want to make your defense a problem for the quarterback to solve, because you're going after him, and like Wilcott says, they haven't got all day to figure it out. Notes on this chapter: I think it's funny that Jaworski was mystified during his playing time by a defensive set with seven defensive backs three linemen, and one linebacker. That is basically the Mike Pettin defense. <laughs> and it's funny, this thing that was um, revolutionary at the time, it became so passe that by 2018 to 2020, we were exhausted of by seeing it. Please, Mike, do anything else. And he refused. I also loved LeBeau's note on why he became a coach in the first place, all about passing on knowledge. Quote, I had gleaned quite a few tidbits by the time I was 35 and had studied pretty hard. 
I felt if I just retired, all that knowledge would be wasted, end quote. Some people really feel that obligation to give back as coaches, and it's cool that LeBeau shared that part of his coaching journey too. He wanted to be a part of continuing to make the game great for the next generation, and it seems pretty clearly that he did. The concept of personnel exchange was crucial, and I'm glad Jaworski mentioned it. Whereas in blitzes prior to the zone blitz, you had everybody lined up in one spot, and either guys blitzed or they didn't. They blitzed or they did something else. Putting those concepts together and having people do related things based on what other people were doing it seems pretty commonplace today, but it was revolutionary at the time. A guy comes from somewhere, someone has to replace him. One guy does one thing, someone else does something else in response. That's a good way to create some confusion. And it shows why there's a lot of mental load in a defense like this. That was something that was always criticized uh, among Dom Capers' Packers defenses, is that they were so complex. You needed a, a certain kind of player to run it, and the Packers just didn't have that level of player on their defense. They couldn't run the scheme because they didn't have the guys to run it. LeBeau also seems to have invented the idea of pattern matching zone, as it's described in this chapter at least. Guys not covering an area with their zone defense, but responding to receivers within that zone. That's another revolutionary concept that is still being used in, in NFL defenses today. Vic Fangio, a big practitioner of that style of zone defense. To talk about this game in particular... The phrase familiarity breeds contempt comes to mind, but not because the the Steelers hated the Bills more because they played them a whole bunch, but playing them gave them the tools they needed to ultimately beat them. Pittsburgh had a great shot to beat Buffalo just because they played them twice a year and also got looks against Houston. That gave them a lot of experience in doing the things they needed to do to become a better defense. However, it didn't work out in the 1992 playoffs because speaking about this game itself, Buffalo wins 24 to 3. Now, as Jaworski takes some pains to point out, you can still learn a lot about a team and a scheme and plays and individual players, even in losses. And you can learn a lot about Pittsburgh in this loss. But we've talked about what we know about Pittsburgh. Let's talk about the game itself for a second. 24 to 3 does sound bad, but Buffalo getting held to 24 is also a pretty big deal. They played 20 total games that season, but they only scored fewer than 24 points eight times. They were two and six in those games. And as the book shows us, there were a couple times where Pittsburgh's poor offense led directly two points for Buffalo. So I had a couple of those plays broken differently. Pittsburgh is just that much closer to really shutting them out entirely, really shutting them down in a big way. Because they scored 24 points with plenty of help from Pittsburgh's offense, Pittsburgh defense really did a pretty darn good job that day. And it also tells us that your defense can only do so much, because I think Draws really undersells how bad Pittsburgh's offense was in this game. They only generated 163 yards on 29 passes. It took them 27 attempts to get to 129 yards rushing. They allowed seven sacks. They threw two interceptions. I mean, what do you expect? A performance like that, you're not going to win many games. Plus, Pittsburgh lost their best defensive player. Plus, their defense dropped a sure pick six, you make a couple of those plays goes a, go a different way on offense where they're not essentially giving points to the Bills. You return that interception for a touchdown, even without Woodson, Rod Woodson, being out on the field. I mean, you could see how this game goes differently for, for Pittsburgh and for Buffalo. It's always just that close. 
And I think as Packers fans, we should probably know just how close you can get to winning in the playoffs without actually doing the job. Finally, Packers Connections, Dick LeBeau got his first crack as a defensive backs coach in Green Bay. He was there as a defensive backs coach from 1976 to 1979. That started with Bart Starr's second season as head coach in Green Bay. Starr and LeBeau overlapped as players in the NFL, had some great battles in, in NFC contests over the years. Pittsburgh safety Darren Perry gets a mention um, in the, the game that we're talking about here. Uh, he coached Packers safeties from 2009 to 2017. Who, of course, did he play under in Pittsburgh? Dom Capers. Dom Capers, of course, was the Packers defensive coordinator from 2009 to 2017. Mixed results, to be sure. I think Capers gets an unfair knock for having a scheme that depended so heavily on elite players. As I think we've seen in this book, every scheme looks better when you have elite players. But Capers also got a lot out of those guys, and I think he was a big part of um, Charles Woodson resurrecting his career in Green Bay. He was better before, or he was good before Capers arrived, but he also won Defensive Player of the Year, getting to do some really interesting things under Capers in 2009. And Does that happen with a different defensive coordinator? Of course, we'll never know. But um, he had increased success under Dom Capers, was a a really excellent player under Capers. And Capers helped the Packers win a Super Bowl in 2010. Yes, they had a lot of good players on that defense. Their defense was also coordinated very well by Capers. Uh, The flip side of that coin, I think, is that Capers let the game pass him by a little bit. He ran a complex system in Carolina, in Houston, and in Green Bay. And eventually, just with the way the game changes, complexity weighs you down. And he never adapted. Still a great defensive mind. He knows more about the game of football. He's forgotten more about the game of football than I'll ever know. But um, I think it's fair to say that he did not adapt over the course of his career in Green Bay, especially, as well as he could have. And um, maybe it cost the Packers a Super Bowl or two. Maybe if um, Brandon Bostic catches an onside in 2014, uh, the Packers have another one with Tom Capers. So you never really know, as we say. Sometimes you're just that close. And uh, if one or two plays break differently, it doesn't really matter who the coach is one way or another. But that's the zone blitz. And um, one of my favorite chapters so far, I think, in the games that changed the game. That'll be our podcast for today, too. That's all I've got for you. I appreciate you listening in. I would appreciate it if you would uh, go to thepowersweep.com and vote for our uh, submissions, who are the guys who are up for a, a podcast scholarship. I'd really, really appreciate it if you take the time to do that. Um, we've, we're going to help more people become smarter Packers fans by just creating better Packers podcasts for you to listen to as well. So uh, give that a look. Um, take a listen. Take a second listen. Consider these podcasts and um, see what you think. Um, in the meantime... Uh, share this episode with someone if you think you would they would enjoy it. That's going to get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.